Hello, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Dr. Paul Jordan, manager of the Amate UK Smaller Companies Fund. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. Hello, nice to join you. Um, I'd just like to start by talking about, obviously, what's happening in the smaller company space. And again, they're sort of in the eye of the storm. And, you know, the FTSE small cap index we've seen has fallen around 40% by mid-March. And I just wanted to start by asking, you know, how the fund has held up in this environment in terms of its underlying holdings. Yeah, uh, I think the the fund has held up. Re- well, it's it's gone down. Clearly, it hasn't held up. But it, it's I think it's fared reasonably well it's um uh it hasn't been um uh it's, it's we're not right at the top of the table so there have been funds which held up better than ours and there have been funds which has held up worse uh, we we try to have a very wide spread of risks in the fund and and we set a, a great store by diversification and the way the cookie has crumbled if you like in this particular crisis is is different to any other kind of market we've ever seen where certain sectors are holding up or even doing well and some some sectors are even thriving while great swathes of the market the, the, the underlying businesses have had to shut down or they're struggling and and the prospects have been deteriorating so it's a it's a very bifurcated market there's some very clear winners and lots of very unfortunate losers um and you know we like most funds will have a spread spanning both types and uh, you know that that spread is very important have you been tapping into the rally we've seen since mid-March? And um, if so, how? And are you wary of any more pain? Yeah, well, I do, I do think you know, the, the lows that we saw in the middle of March briefly were uh, a, a kind of panic reaction. So when, when a crisis hits like this, you know, the market goes through a number of phases. Um, you know, initially, it's a sort of kind of disbelief watching the storm brewing and thinking well that might come here if it comes here what happens and but nothing's really sort of um um shifting too badly so you can't it's you you get lulled into a bit of a false sense of security and then so when it becomes clear oh yeah this is really going to hit us which that moment was i think the uh, when we all came in one monday and found out that the virus was spreading rapidly in italy and iran uh, we suddenly thought crumbs this is coming our way um, and then you go into a kind of panic phase. So in, in March, you know, there was a very clear panic phase when really people were just selling, apparently selling stocks almost willy-nilly without any kind of ability to calculate the actual impact that was going to take place. And then when you, when you get that panic phase, lots of things sell off. And then you tend to get a big, quite a steep rally from the panic phase when the market does its calculations and starts to refine the probabilities of what might happen and that's a it's a process where everyone is beavering away like mad I mean March was incredibly hard work for most people who work in financial markets because we're having to do a huge amount of rethinking and hundreds of conversations hundreds of bits of analysis to try and refine judgments on what might happen and then you do see significant rallies so I'm I think um, the, the kind of the, the usual pattern is if you're going to panic you need to panic early if you haven't panicked early, then don't panic because there's no point. You're just going to end up selling irrationally. Um, and I, I think we did a little bit of panicking early. We fortunately did very little panicking late, which is a very expensive thing if you get those things. It's painful if you sell something for a terribly low price and there's really no way back from that position. Um, and so, yes, we did participate in the rally pretty fully. 
um, because we didn't panic out of things and some we did make some useful additions not a huge number but we did buy some things at good prices one one example is we have a holding in a company called loop up where this has gone public because we have to make a we went over five percent of the company um loop up is actually a, a beneficiary of what's been happening it's a conference call provider and um, has video conferencing plus very high quality audio conferencing it tends to be used by a lot of professional service companies for its reliability and they were kind of run off their feet at the beginning of this with inbound inquiries uh, for the first time almost ever, whereas normally it's hard work to sell that kind of product into a crowded market. Suddenly they were getting inbound inquiries. And, um, you know, that's obviously one of the stocks which has, has done well through the through the piece. Um, you know, other kind of companies which have, of the kind of category where companies are actually um, likely to see business pick up, there's Begbis Trainer, which okay, that's an insolvency practitioner. They've become incredibly busy um, over this period. There's also stocks like Gear for Music, where, where another company we have a declarable stake in. Um, Gear for Music's an online music instrument reseller um, vendor. So some of it's reselling, others they sell their own brands. Um, you know, actually, music instrument shops those which have been able to sell online have been run off their feet again because people have got more time at home than they were planning and they're not going away. And a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, why don't I get that instrument I always wanted and um, start learning to play? And music's a natural place to turn when you've got a bit more time at home than, than you expected. So those kind of, uh, those kind of um, wide, actually quite a wide mix of companies, those have been beneficiaries. Clearly, we're in uncertain times. I, I read in one of your commentaries that you believe as fund managers, you're, you're forced to take a view on what you think the most likely future scenarios would be will be and you know with that in mind how, how do you leave the current coronavirus situation will play out in terms of time frames and and is that changing every day or you know how yeah do you that it's such a difficult question I, but to kind of cut to the well i think are the, the really key components of that question and i, I think probably the single biggest component that, uh, that we need to have some kind of view on is is there going to be a vaccine developed for the virus and if so when and those are Two separate questions, really, and we definitely shouldn't take the first one for granted. I think my initial thinking about the uh, the, the situation was that we were highly likely to get a vaccine, and I, I know that a lot of people, um, I've even heard some pretty senior politicians say things which means that they are really assuming that we're going to get a vaccine. Um, so then, at some point, I think in during April, uh, I was listening to a, a, a very interesting call by a, a lot. A, somebody who's worked with um, viruses all their lives for 30, 40 years, who was very much saying, well, you cannot take it for granted that we're going to have a vaccine. You know, personally, I think we have probably a 50% chance of getting one. Maybe it's a bit lower. And, um, you know, it's maybe as low as 30%. But we, we have a good chance of getting a vaccine, but it is no more than a good chance. And, um, you know, this has really profound bearings on public policy, because clearly, if if what we're trying to do is bridge to a vaccine, then lockdowns and all the, the, the massive economic damage that they cause, uh, you know, can you can successfully argue that you know this is a price worth paying because actually we are actually going to avoid deaths through locking down and through economic destruction if there is never a vaccine produced, and um, in the absence of a cure, which is also there's a possibility we'll find a cure, and I don't know what that 
probability is really. I think it's it's lower, but it is clearly there's a possibility of that too. Um, if we get neither of those things, then you know, clearly public policy has to be profoundly different because, in fact, all, all you're doing by locking down is you're delaying the spread of the virus. You're not. Uh, you're delaying it for a period of time. You're not putting it off indefinitely. It will still come and will still have to spread. And so those two things are profoundly different. In, in and, and I suppose one thing that I'm finding um, um, problematic at the moment is that there is almost zero public discussion of these two outcomes. And it's it's very much assumed that there is something called the science and the science will tell us what the answers are. You know, actually, this is a judgment that politicians have to make based on probabilities. And, and I don't know what the right answer is, but I know they're, they're profoundly different things. So suffice it to say that, I, I, you know, I think well, we're kind of taking a pragmatic point of view that there is only so much that the country can afford to do in terms of delaying the spread of the virus. And um, again, this is something which is not really discussed publicly, but there, there is clearly um, at some point there's a breaking point beyond which the country can't carry on um, shutting the economy down um, because then the damage that we do from doing that is even greater than the horrific um, death toll of the virus. So, you know, we are, we are very much, there are profoundly painful decisions that have to be made. And I think in terms of answering your question, when are they going to be made? I, I think they kind of have to be made by the autumn. And, um, you know, there will need to be a reframing of the discussion around how we're handling this virus over the summer um, so that it's not just a question of it has to be stopped at every single possible cost um, to a, a reframing of, you know, are we, trying to, are we trying to bridge to a vaccine or a cure or are we simply trying to bridge to a situation where we can manage it sensibly and distribute the... Um, the, the the difficulty of handling all the cases. You, you talked about the damage and obviously the length of the lockdown there. Uh, what have you made of the UK government's offer of financial support to businesses during the pandemic? And and do you think it will give the market the timely boost that clearly it will need when lockdown ends? I, I think it it was um, it was well done, uh, it, albeit it was um, chaotically done. And uh, you know, the, the, I think. Behind the scenes, if if one could see behind the scenes, you know, I, you know, we like to think that government policy is this incredibly organised thing where lots of preparation, preparatory work is done, and then when announcements are made, um, it's pretty clear that enough work has been done to know that that's going to feed through to a workable situation. You know, it's clear that the the economic measures that the chancellor took were announced really off the cuff, and and a lot of the work was done the night before. And very, there was little consultation. But you know, I think broadly, it was it, in, not just in the UK, but around the world, it's been well done. Um, it will leave every government scrabbling for um, financing over the coming years. So this is going to have a, you know, a multi-year impact on on um, on the sort of global um, financial situation. Um, but it was a necessary step, and I think broadly, it will be effective, subject to. One big condition, and the, and the condition is that that the lockdown does end and that it doesn't repeat. And so, you know, we are we've certainly heard over the weekend and already a few weeks ago in the Scottish government's response to the unlocking strategy. There's a very clear implication that the lockdown may have to recur. You know, I kind of I, I sort of think we're in a situation where we need to get to a point where that is ruled out as a, as a, as a possibility. So. Um, 
Of course, I don't know how it can be because ruling it out might then encourage irresponsible behaviour. So the government has to tread a fine line between wanting very cautious behaviour in the public to continue and um, actually not ending up in a scenario where we lock down again. I mean, I think that, that, that with another lockdown, we might start to lose all kinds of financial credibility. And then the more distant that the unlocking is, the less likely the government response is to work. So, you know, if this is a three-month lockdown, I think the measures will prove effective. If it's much more protracted than that, then, uh, you know, the, the, that becomes, the chances of a depression become a lot more significant. We talked a bit there about how long lockdown may be. I, I want to talk a bit more about the future post-lockdown. And there's been lots of talk, obviously, about how COVID-19 is going to change human behaviour in the long term. Is that a theme you've been tapping into in the portfolio? And if so, how? Yeah, I, t- I tend to think that we 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 like to spend. Once we have a big crisis, we then spend the next decade solving the last crisis. Mm-hmm. So we're actually, we're quite good at solving the crisis that's just happened. We're not that good at solving the next crisis. But so I, I think, to a degree, we will spend the next decade reliving this crisis and solving it, so we handle future pandemics better. So one result of that very clearly is going to be uh, a mu- much more emphasis on. Um, on, on healthcare spending, much more emphasis on um, um, disinfection, on um, procuring rapid uh, the rapid ability to develop medicines and responses to new pandemics. We're going to become acutely aware that you know the next the next um, viral outbreak is probably no more than five years away. It's not to say that will turn into a pandemic, but you know we've had three over the last. 15 years pretty much and, and we're going to these things will recur so we'll probably be much more conscious of pandemic risk going forward and, and there'll be a lot of spending done to reduce the destruction of the next pandemic which will be the right thing to do that also means that the next crisis probably won't be a pandemic it'll be something we just haven't thought of yet but you know we will go through the motions of solving this crisis for, for many years to come and I think also we'll be more mindful of the, the ability of natural disasters to completely disrupt our economy and way of life in a way that we haven't really been willing to contemplate before. We've always thought, well, yes, these things might happen, but they're not really going to affect us. Now we know they will, you know, natural disasters do affect us. So probably there's an acceleration of climate change consciousness and, and the sort of changes that are needed to um, prevent climate change disaster. I think that that's going to go up the agenda. I hope it will. Um, I, I, I suspect it will do. Um, and we're going to be more willing to say, well, actually, yes, we need to disrupt our economy to prevent these disasters because now we know that this 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 disruption becomes real at some point and when it becomes real, it can be devastating. And, you know, we need to remember that actually what's going on at the moment is, is a relatively um, um, mildly lethal pandemic. You know, the, the, the mortality rate from the pandemic is probably between 0.5 and 1%. That number could have been thirty percent, and and some, you know, viruses that have done huge damage in the past, like smallpox, had had massively higher mortality rates. So in a way, we're maybe being taught a lesson, um, you know, in a in a in a milder form that might come back in the future. So I think there will be those kind of changes to to the way things work. But I I, I think human human um, um, behavior, the human. Um, condition if you like doesn't change really it goes on from generation to generation so you know we also need to be realistic about um the propensity for 
people to want to go back to more normal kinds of behaviour will always will be will be strong, and you know, and, and that's probably a good thing. That's great, Paul. Thank you for joining us today. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. And if you'd like to learn more about the Amartya UK Smaller Companies Fund, please visit fundcaliber.com. And while you're there, remember to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please note that these are unprecedented times and markets can react very quickly to news. The views expressed are at the time of recording and could change. And remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or to sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at your time of listening.